Welcome to the Exhaust Notes Podcast. Hey, what is good, everyone? Welcome back to the Exhaust Notes Podcast. My name is Nick. I've got my guys, Rowan and Todd, with me. We are two races into the Formula One 2022 season, and today was a, a doozy. I don't know if that applies. It is a it is a car reference, but it was just a crazy race. But let's get into into it. How, how are you guys doing? How, what do you think of the race? First first reaction. All aboard the Steiner ship. <laughs> These colors don't run, and neither does Haas apparently. Because I just want to start an impromptu USA chant anytime Kevin Magnuson does something cool. And shout outs to Mick Schumacher. Hope he's doing okay. I think there was at one point a shot of him against the race wall, so that's good news. But that was a hellacious ca- a crash, to say the least. You know, if you listen to the episode prior to this one, we talked about how dangerous this track is. And I mean, I don't know if it's ironically, but where he went off and what happened is not something I actually would have expected to see on this track. Like that is not the danger we were actually that Todd and I were really kind of pointing out about the track because it it, it was like a weird like hit the curb and spin around the opposite direction type of thing that. You just don't usually see in Formula One. Going 170, which is just nuts. Like, that was bad. And you could tell how fast he was going by him spinning out, hitting the wall, spinning around again, and then continuing to slide for, I don't know, what felt like a mile afterward. Another two another the, two turns, right? I mean, basically. Yeah, yeah. He had another wall and kept sliding. Um, but the, the, the biggest crazy thing to me i mean obviously the the wreck was crazy but when they were cleaning up the car and they tried to pick it up with the crane and it split in half and not at the spot not at the part where it's supposed to split in half but like the gearbox and engine just fell out of the car with the wheels and rest of the car attached to it so guys i i saw 33 g's would be this would be the i don't know how you how you say that the impact of hitting that wall at 170 miles an hour no, that was scary. And the other thing that kind of let me know something wasn't right was that very far angle that they took when they were showing the crash, but they weren't kind of zooming in on everything. And that's always worrisome because you're like, please tell me all limbs are intact. Please tell me there's some movement on the driver. Please tell me he's responding in some way, shape or form because that looked bad. And it's one of those things that I don't want this new 33 million to ever kind of go through their first driver death this early into the cycle, if you will. Yeah, I definitely thought the worst when I saw it Um, because it was just horrendous, right? Like I'm, I'm used to seeing the cars just fall apart, which is intentional. That's why they do that. And it's a testament to like how great the safety is on these cars, right? To to put it into perspective, I actually looked it up uh, yesterday, like 33 G's, the most, like most people probably ever feel is like a half a G, maybe one G in a car, but like, if you if you've ever ridden in a on a commercial flight, that takeoff is approximately a half a G. So thirty three times that or what? Double that. Luckily for me, every episode I'm on with these two, it's two Gs. If you catch what I'm saying, homies. <laughs> gang, gang. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's actually surprising that that's it was that little of g and i say little facetiously because max if you remember at silverstone hitting the wall again supposedly going about 170 last year um he his was like across 
all the way across the track, across the gravel pit, into tire wall. And I was like 56 G. And he walked away like relatively okay. But I mean, long story short, thank God uh, Mick's okay and able to continue racing. I was a bit surprised they didn't try to throw another car together, try to put Fittipaldi in there as the reserve driver. Because with that track and that race of attrition, you never know what could happen. He could have been right behind K-Mag, so we never know. Yeah, I mean, I was I was surprised about that, but I was honestly really surprised to see Mick doing interviews and basically saying, yeah, like, I felt like I could have raced today. I'm not even sore. Like, See, I think at that point, Formula One has to protect the driver from itself because I get that these guys have that machismo that's oozing out of them. Like, confidence is the name of the game when you are a Formula One driver, but... Just take the camera away from them because I know there is a certain theatrical nature that we all have to kind of play into as Formula One viewers. And then also the drivers themselves have to kind of correspond to us. But yeah, that was just one where it's like, just let him be. The car should be the furthest thing from his mind, especially given the history of his dad now. Like we haven't seen his dad in a hot minute. And that was my first thought was like, his dad has gone through this really tragic incident. The last thing I would want is Mama Shoemaker or Mama Schumacher and Sister Schumacher to like have yet another tragedy in their life, especially considering it's the same thing. So I'm glad there wasn't any sort of symbolism there. Yeah, I think, I think uh, it was probably Aaron. It was either, it was either Utah or Aaron in the, in the discord that, you know, brought up that Ralph Schumacher, Michael's brother and Mick's uncle was actually talking about this, you know, in, in being interviewed while all of this is playing out. Right. I think the scariest part about it. And like the thing that got me is. So the, you you found out after that the radio went out. Right. And that's why they couldn't communicate with him. A lot of times when you're watching formula one and you don't know what's going on, they cut to like a short clip of the driver and then they play a little bit of the radio to confirm he's okay. And then they kind of move away from the, the, the stressful part of it as much as possible. But this was really interesting because they they didn't have the radio, you know, at, from the impact, they lost connection on that. So you couldn't up until you heard the track, you know, doctor, physician, whatever emergency medical person gave that feedback that Mick was OK. You didn't even know, you know, it was really like a long time. I mean, it's a short time in, in hindsight, but it was like. I don't know, three or four minutes that feels like 20 because you're just like, we just saw this car get destroyed and we haven't seen any movement. Tell me he's okay. And it was still in the car. Like he didn't immediately hop out, which normally you see him just kind of pop right out. Like even Max got out of his car at that Silverstone wreck pretty quickly. So yeah, that was, that was scary. And it felt a little bit like drive to survive was directing real life for a second with Lewis's 32 second pit stop. Well, uh, should we start off with uh, reviews? Do we have reviews? We have this no week? reviews, and I'm about to fuck smash a door if we don't get a review from anybody anytime soon. Because come on, we give you quality Formula One content. We give you terrific puns. We give you Professor Yates and his scientific breakdowns. We give you Professor Engwell and his 
I don't even know what Nick does, but Nick does it really well. But at the same time, it all deserves to be commemorated in a nice, tasteful one paragraph review. I'm not going to let you know what the sentence structure might be, but let's get a three to five to make your English teachers proud from way back when. But come on, we need the reviews. It gives us a greater visibility to new listeners. And if you're not going to give us a review, no, you should still give us a review. But at the same time, tell three friends about us. They don't even have to like cars. They just have to like lovely gentlemen talking. So. I don't know how to follow that up. Yeah, I didn't really like your Steiner or your Gunther and Nick is Dr. Helmet Engvall. He's Gene Haas. I don't know. <laughs> it's just me like pitching different things to Nick and hoping that Nick never gets bored or never gets tired of me and my shenanigans. So thank you, Nick Engvall Haas. Ever, never. <laughs> we do, we do want to start a new kind of idea that we've been talking about for the past few episodes, because we've collectively come upon some interesting uh, wordsmithing that goes on in, in the commentating in, in formula one. And because we've got so many people listening that are new to formula one, we kind of want to talk about some definitions and, and get some clarity on some of the stuff that, you know, like a lot of you listen to the porpoising episode. So we're going to not necessarily drive in, drive in, not necessarily dive into an entire episode of one definition, but we want to talk about some terminology so everybody can kind of be up to speed on that kind of stuff. So Todd, what are we going to go with this week? This week, we're going to talk about undercutting and what that means. So I'll give a very vague description and try to sound smart for a second, and then you guys can give some color on it, but... During a Formula One race, the, t- the cars are going around the track on a set of tires that is constantly degrading as it gets, you know, driven really hard. You know, if you have driven a road car and you turn really hard, you hear the tires squeal or if you lock your brakes up in a car or whatever, you know, over time that degrades the tires. In a race environment, tires degrade very fast. Over, uh, you know, maybe 10 laps, the tire itself might lose you know, two or three tenths worth of grip. So two or three tenths of a second worth of grip over that time span. So an undercut essentially is if you're following someone, right? Say you're three seconds behind them and your tires are degrading at the same rate. You could pit and, you know, you're coming around the lap and the car in front of you can decides to continue racing essentially. And you go into the pits and you change the tires. That new set of tires could be worth uh, three seconds a lap faster, depending on where you are in your stint and the race. Um, so you cut, you pit earlier than them to get a better set of tires, which gives you a essentially positive tire delta, delta being a time difference between the two measurements. And when that happens, you're the the time you would lose in the pit stop because they're obviously going to have to stop to not have you overtake them. Um, you can make up the time lost in the pit stop by getting a newer, fresher set of tires earlier. Thank you, Professor Yates. I think we kind of saw an example of this where, would you call what Charles Leclerc attempted to do or was it a successful pump fake? Because I think he almost Jedi mind trick Checo to do that a little bit early, no? Yeah, that was radio games, which is was really funny to see Ferrari play because they're historically or at least the last several years have not been good 
at race direction or um, pit strategies. They've been actually like kind of comically bad in the last several years. So for them to be leading and say like, oh, we're boxing this lap for new tires, like almost blatantly, like kind of like snickering as they said it, and then causing the Red Bull to pit and then stay out was was a great pump fake, as you called it, Rohit. Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting to to see that. So to your point, like they are very, I don't want to say disorganized, but they come across, I guess, a little less strategic on the radio when you do hear them talking over the past like three, four years. But also, you just don't expect those kind of pump fakes from Ferrari. They, they're they a very straightforward, we're Ferrari, we, we beat you on the track kind of mentality or marketing, you know, speak, I guess. You know, I mean, this may sound a little xenophobic and it's not my intent, but it's always interesting to hear the radio engineers or the radio analysts come on. And I'm conditioned to hearing English voices or English accents. So they sound a little more regal and professional. And then to your point, Ferrari comes on and at times it's the most stereotypical Italian accent. This side of Mario from Mario Brothers, where it's like, uh, we need to box uh, right now. And I was like, are, are we sure this is like the best voice? Like we couldn't hire some intern to like just relay the commands. Like, do we really need this? But yeah, I mean, it worked like a charm because to your point, Todd, they were snickering and it's like, yeah, we're going to box. And it was almost equivalent to Borat telling the not joke from like the first movie where they just held it a little too late. But it ultimately, it made a lot of sense. So kudos to you, Ferrari. And maybe this is part of Matteo Bonato's plan to only speak Italian when the cameras are on. That's a great call. Yeah, it's however it worked out or if they were really planning to pit and then they wanted to pump fake and see if Red Bull would go in the pits just to see and maybe they would have pitted the next lap if they both stayed out. I don't know. But either way, I think they accomplished what they were setting out to do with the radio communication. And uh, maybe they were trying to do the inverse of what I said earlier instead of undercut them, overcut them which is we'll get into at another time. Yeah, I think that I think that the uh, just the overall pit strategy is an interesting part of the conversation tonight, too. Right. Because. Uh, you know. With with yellows, you kind of can't with safety cars, virtual safety cars, you kind of can't stick to the plan. Right. And. There was a lot of um, there was a lot of just surprise kind of things in, in terms of pitting, and I mean there was even slightly close call with with Carlos Sainz and and Max in the pit when when Max came in and Carlos was going out, or maybe that was flipped around. I can't remember, but Lewis Hamilton only pitted twice, right? And you know to the conversation around. Tires degrading, pit strategies. It was kind of interesting because he ran, he and Kevin Magnuson ran, I can't remember how many laps, but a significant amount before pitting. And they ran on the hard tires where everybody else kind of was like, okay, well, this is going to be a three stop. We're going to pit or two stop. We're going to pit, you know, I don't know, 15 in, 20 in, another 15, 20, another 15, 20 type of thing, right? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that 
like so to answer your earlier question, Hamilton did thirty nine laps on those hards. Yeah, which that's was insane. Really crazy and um kind of got a bit screwed with that second virtual safety car because he was like oh you know what's going on or whatever and then when they came around he's like oh can we box and the guy's like yeah box and it was too late he was past the the pit lane entry so yeah you to your point nick like you can have all the strategy in the world and then the first wreck or the first safety car or the first time somebody spins out or breaks down all of that's out the window. And I, I know that they plan for all of these things to happen, but you never know what lap it's going to happen or happen on, what um, cars it's going to involve. It could be your rivals. It could be somebody at the back of the grid. It's it's just like complete chaos when it breaks down into that. And then, you know, with the other safety car, like the like breaking down in the pit lane, like you can't really like how many of their scenarios... I know they use computers to like run simulations of the races. Like how many of their simulations do they have with like that car breaking down in the pit lane and closing the pit lane? Yeah. Yeah. I like to think of formula one teams like, you know, normal human beings have like a plan a and a plan B as a backup, maybe a plan C if you're a really well organized individual or family or organization even. But I like to think that, that formula one teams are like, we've got plan A to Z then we've got double A to double Z. And then we probably got triple A to triple Z. But you still aren't gonna you still aren't gonna bet on I mean, even just the the you know pushing was it Alonzo's car in too, like just throws like this wild curveball into things. Even taking away the like, in my opinion, taking away the the safety car, right? Because they didn't they had a virtual safety car for that, but like seeing guys on the track pushing a car down the side of the track as you're going because they're under what's the limit for a virtual safety car like still 80 or 90 110 miles an hour or something like that yeah it's it's like 40 percent. you have to reduce speeds by 40 percent. as five guys push a formula one car 10 to 15 feet to your left like is wild to think about just wild. No, I mean, I think that was a couple things I wanted to get your perspective on. You guys kind of touched on it, but first thing is first, if AAA doesn't have that sort of marketing plan rolled out to Formula One now, because of you, Nick Engvall, they should, because I think that's a <laughs> delicious bit of symmetry. Secondly, the thing that struck me as still a casual slash new viewer was we kept hearing about this. Checo was kind of screwed by the first safety car. Lewis was screwed by the second. What exactly was that? Because you guys are kind of hinting at it, and I'll be the one that asked a dumb, but hopefully not too dumb question of what exactly causes that disadvantage for those two drivers in that moment. Is it the fact that they are not allowed to do certain things that they would normally be able to do in a matter of a race, such as going into the pit or boxing? Or is there something else on top of that as well? Yeah, so the, the, I'll explain the Checo one. Maybe Nick can explain the Hamilton one. Um, so basically, Checo pitted right before the safety car happened. And you lose, I don't remember what the actual time loss is for the pit stops there, but let's say 20 or 30 seconds from entering the pit lane to exiting the pit lane. They have a time measurement. You You always see on the screen, like, 1.9 seconds or 2.9 seconds. That's the actual physical time it took to take the tires off the car, 
put the new tires on the car and it starts going again. The actual total time loss, because when you're off the track in the pit lane, everybody else is still going, you know, 150, 200 miles an hour. So you're only traveling, depending on which race it is, you're, you, I think the pit pit lanes are like 40 or 50 miles an hour, like limit, speed limit, uh, depending on the track, it's different. But so Checo pitted and he lost that 30 seconds. And then immediately after that, the safety car happened. So when you pit, you're obviously going to lose time and people might go in front of you uh, because you're pitting and, at a certain time and they're only a few seconds behind you. Him counting on the fact that he can get out there and, you know, undercut, like we talked about earlier, get his tires up to temperature and go racing at his normal speed again. But then when the safety car comes out, all drivers on track, either a regular safety car or a virtual safety car, let's say virtual in this case, because I think that one was a virtual safety car. Everyone on track has to reduce their speed by 40% and there's no overtaking. So you essentially get what's called a cheap pit stop at that time. So you're losing a lot less time to everyone else on track because they're only going 110 miles an hour versus 200 miles an hour. So by him pitting earlier and then the safety car happening, everyone else got to stop under the safety car and get tires on while they're losing less time, which in that instance put... I think it was, did he go into third or fourth after that? I th- fourth, I think. Was it fourth? Yeah. Um, so he lost three places just by pitting and then the safety car happening. So that's how he got screwed. Yeah. I think on top of that, the, the kind of getting back up to speed and catching up, right? Like in theory, you would come back out on fresh tires. You'd have an advantage over anybody that's on the track longer than, you, you know, anybody that didn't pit, but because you also just can't go fast. You're like not only losing that just straight off the clock time in the pits and like the delay of everybody else not having to lose that time, but you can't catch up, right? Like the the catch up part of that, you know, cool. I got new tires. You completely lose that advantage in a sense, right? On top of just the times and, you know, like the free pit stop conversation. It's, it's like multi-layered in a sense, in the way that these guys have to, everything has to go right. Right. And like when you're talking about races that, and, and qualifying and all this stuff that is, you know, hundreds of a second difference determines so many of these races and so many of these uh, qualifyings that, you know, all that stuff in a, in a, in a race can be really disheartening too. Like you've seen a lot of, a lot of guys just like, you know, Checo definitely kind of held his own and, and stuck to it. And I thought at the end he might actually get signs, but um, it, it's, it's just a lot of, I think mental wear and tear when, when that happens too, because especially when you're the only person in that instance, right. He's the only person that, that kind of got screwed by that timing. Um, and in regards to, to Lewis and, his situation he so the pit when there's a safety car the pit is open for a certain amount of time closed for a certain amount of time right so he like todd mentioned was was notified to to pit uh just too late when he passed the pit line or the you know the pit lane but as Max was kind of complaining about Leclerc the whole race, if you cross that white line, you end up getting penalized. So if he would have, 
you know, knee jerk reaction and pulled into the pits, he's going to, he's going to be penalized for it anyway. So we had to take that extra lap, but during that extra lap, I believe the pits closed, right? So he was kind of stuck out on old tires until the whole crew, the whole, like the whole, you know, race kind of got back on track after their pits. So now he's got to go back in after, you know, 15 other guys have already taken advantage of the, the, the free pit stop essentially. You know, there's one other thing I wanted to add there, Nick, that you, I didn't even like think about when I was explaining that earlier, but the, not only do you lose the time during the pit stop, but uh, when you t- pit for a set of new tires, as we talked about earlier, or I think this was in the pre-show, like you can't just immediately go out on those new tires and go 100%. You have to warm the tires up. So another way that Checo got screwed is he pitted during normal racing. And then that lap, that next lap that he's coming out of the the garage, he's got to warm his tires up that next lap or not the garage, the pit lane. And then everyone else that got to pit under the safety car, not only do they get the cheap pit stop, but then once they get out, you see them winding and weaving behind or while they're on track going slow uh, under the virtual safety car. In this case, they're warm. They get to warm their tires up for free. So once racing resumes, they're at full speed, essentially. No, I mean, I thank you both for that because I think it'll go a long way for not only myself, but also the listeners to just kind of understand these terms in a little bit more clear context. And the other thing that's nice is gym teachers all over the world are rejoicing now because if you mess up, you do an extra lap apparently in Formula One. So we can always take that with the uh, grain of salt. I mean, I think it's also interesting um, to note as much as like Formula One is is very driver centric, right? It seems like it's one person because they're the face of it. It is absolutely a team sport and not just the other driver on your team, but to Todd's point about that first, that, you know, first set of first lap on a set of tires, we see guys get squirrely and, and, you know, lose traction and, slip a little bit here and there or maybe even slam on the brakes and and you know lock up the brakes when they're not careful about that and today there was a little bit of back and forth with max around him not you know kind of letting off a little bit right because max is notoriously like there's an opening i go for it it's instinctual in a, in a way right not even in a way it is instinctual for him but last race we saw that that didn't work out. Leclerc basically let him make his own mistakes and then Leclerc st- stuck level-headed with it and and won the race. Although Max won this week, his team came on and basically said like let's back off, let's 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 make this work as opposed to forcing it. Um but also interestingly, last week Max was complaining that he didn't get to run as hard as he wanted to on those first outlaps with the tires and you know it's just an interesting dynamic right like i think that you know we we only get to hear max and his team as you know as much as like everybody's out there having these conversations he's he's the form he's the champion right like we're going to hear more of him for this season no matter what unless he just completely falls off and is running at the back of the pack but i think that it's interesting to hear that you know and thinking about how a lot of these guys are 
are, you know, really young and like the coaching aspect of this coming from the team, you get to see it with, you know, with Yuki and drive to survive if you've watched it. But like that aspect of, of formula one is really fascinating to me because, you know, like there's a, there's a lot to be said about how you work with those people and how you become successful. And I think obviously, you know, you kind of saw it today, like Max letting off just a tiny bit and not going for it. And he had one moment where he kind of, kind of seemed like he was going to pass, but like obviously was not going to try. And Charles Leclerc actually like kind of swerved over to block a little bit, which took him off his line for that corner. And I think that was the lap or maybe it was the next lap that Max eventually passed him to, you know, for the last few laps or whatever. But that strategy is is like layered on top of the pit strategy, the tire strategy, all of these things, right? So there's so many layers of like how to think about this. And I think the more you get into it, the more you know about it, the more you watch it, the more it's just like, it is like, the it's like, I would imagine it's like the first time a computer engineer like realizes this is what they want to do with their life. And they are just like in the matrix for the first time. And you're like, oh my God, it's the matrix, you know? He sent a great dummy on that lap, that lap that you're talking about yeah, down into yeah. turn one, sent a great dummy to just like make, like, as you mentioned, Leclerc off his line. But it, it, this is two races now where Max's team has been on to him saying like, hey, easy on the outlaps. We don't want to overcook the tires immediately so we can save them a little bit for the, the race. And it's credit to Max. Like that was a, a great drive. Um, there was a lot of kind of dumb DRS games that we'll get into, but the, that eventual pass was just next level, not only racing, but IQ on his part to, to put Leclerc offline, which gave him enough of a gap around the lap that Leclerc couldn't come back from it with DRS. I mean, the more I watch Max drive, the more I'm just taken in awe. Like the the analogy we used in a previous episode was he's Patrick Mahomes in a sense because he's doing things with a car that we thought we saw everything a car is capable of. But this guy is showing us next level brilliance. He's playing chess when everybody's playing checkers. The thing I kind of hope is something we alluded to with Mick Schumacher is I hope his team protects him from himself because this is the second week in a row and maybe I'll be the resident Max Verstappen hater, but he really is writing checks, his body, and eventually his team may not be able to cash because what is too far at this point? Because granted, we have a champion in our midst. He can get away with a certain degree of things, but at the same time, as my co-hosts are always quick to point out, this is an asterisk title. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you dice it, there's always going to be a level of questioning with regards to the validity of this championship. And he's not doing himself any favors in the eyes of the hearts and minds of the public by constantly berating his engineers, constantly berating everybody, saying, I'm not going to do it this way. Or, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. But when he's shown a level-headedness that sometimes isn't there with him, he seems to be even more effective. He seems to be Neo in the Matrix, like we said, where it's just everything is moving in slow motion for him. But I don't know. Like I said, I'm so convinced he's not going to repeat this year. And this week was another instance of that because even the tone of his radio messages was just that of an insecure, desperate man just clinging on to something that we aren't even in the infancy of the season. So I don't know about all that i think that's a stretch but i do like the jacks or the patrick mahomes reference he like drives like 
Patrick Mahomes plays football and he talks like Jackson Mahomes Allegedly. TikToks, probably. <laughs> that's that's probably the equivalent. I, I don't know who Jackson Mahomes is. Who is this? What? Isn't that it his, is his brother? I was being little, silly. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. Max, Max is a. Uh, so the interesting thing about it, and the thing I keep thinking about, Max. It sounds it sounds ridiculous to say like something like a a championship season comes down to one thing, right? But if you look back at last season, essentially, like if the last race of the year, if both Max and Lewis crash out, Max wins the title. So he has a huge advantage because he doesn't have to worry about wrecking the car, right? Like if he wrecks and and Lewis wrecks like as they're going, you know, fighting for position for however many laps at the end of the day, Max, Max is, that is an advantage for Max, right? The, the driver that doesn't have to worry about losing as long as the other guy doesn't finish either is, a, is truly at an advantage. And you saw that with Lewis, like being extra, extra cautious. Right. And Max is already an aggressive driver. He's like, you know, he he's Lewis, 10 years ago, right? Like Lewis was that aggressive when he came up. And I think all young drivers have to be to, to kind of like, you really have to get in and like show, Hey, this is, this is my track too kind of mentality. Right. But what's really interesting is, and this will be like one of the things that I watch for in terms of like, will Max end up with more titles than Lewis in his career is if Max can understand these moments, right? The first race, he clearly was in his own head fighting Charles going back and forth and, and he lost the race, right? He lost the race by, by dive bombing and not being able to recover because yes, you might be able to beat somebody to a corner and position yourself to, to like be ahead of them at that point. But if you can't continue on at the, at the pace while you're getting out of that corner, you're not going to, you're not going to be ahead, right? If, if they're level headed and they take that even slightly better and even even with you in front, they're going to have an advantage coming out because they're able to maintain that pace. Regardless of how we look at like the cars and like, you know, because you, you get into the weeds and say that Red Bull was insanely faster on the straights. Ferrari was much faster through the turns this week. But take that away. And like it really comes down to the strategic mind of the driver being able to understand like just that little bit of like not quite fully, you know, pedal to the metal, full send kind of attitude is actually the difference between a, a driver that's going to win a lot versus a driver that's going to win some, right? And we've seen this regularly in Formula One, right? Like it's happened for many, many years. There's movies that you could go watch. You could go listen to a previous episode and we talked about a bunch of movies that you could learn about how some of these drivers have been throughout the years, right? But I think that today was actually really a cool thing to see Max, you know, like I'm, I'm not the biggest Max fan, but like to see him actually take a pause, take a breath and be able to win. It's a scary thing for the rest of the field, because if he's able to do that on a regular basis, he becomes twice the driver that he has been. And he's been the best driver on, on the track for the past, probably two years, arguably. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think this is a great time because you kind of just mentioned it, Nick, to talk about the DRS games that we saw. So this is two races in a row now. And this is why, as you just mentioned, why Max lost the first race, right? 
he every time they got to the DRS detection zone in turn one in Bahrain, Charles led him essentially by and took a different line into the corner so he could carry a little bit more speed so that when they got into the second DRS detection zone, he could take him back after turns two and three, that little switchback. He could overtake him in turn four and then be ahead the rest of the lap. And Max didn't learn from that. He kept doing it. He did it three laps in a row. Um, That happened. And then we saw today with the DRS detection line, which is pretty much right at the breaking point of turn 27, the final turn of the track. He, during the first, overshot him down that little straight before turn 27. And then Charles immediately came came back or Charles, I guess we're supposed to say French Monegasque accent. He immediately Charles overtook Max right away again. And then Max learned like, oh, we're doing this game again. So then the next lap, they both uh, went into the corner, turn 27 and slowed down. And I think it was that next lap that Charles kind of dummied him right there and they both hit the brakes and then Charles took off right when Max hit the brakes again because they thought they were both going to, well, who was going to go over the line first? And then he took him again. And then Max learned finally, to your point, Nick, like, oh, we're going to do this. All right. So I'm going to approach this corner differently. I'm going to approach the DRS line differently and take a different approach to it. And it eventually won him the race. But the thing that I don't like to see, which I, I'm not a huge proponent of DRS, but I also don't hate DRS. I think it helps passing and it makes for interesting racing, especially with these new regulations. I don't like to see like every time two guys are on for a lead and it's so far, it's only happening with the, you know, cars in P1 and P2, but maybe we have a car in P10 and P11 doing this to try to, oh, who's going to, you know, chicken out first uh, to hit the DRS line and, oh, I'm going to overtake you because you went across the DRS line first. We don't want to see that. We want to see close racing. We want to see them pushing flat out. We don't know how these tires are really built yet and how they react to things. But I don't want to see these games of, like, everyone slams on their brakes at the DRS detection line just so whoever goes first loses out. No, it's very much, no, no, you go. No, 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 you go. It's a Portland four-way stop in a sense because everybody wants to be a nice guy except when they don't want to be a nice guy. And no, I thought it was expertly said by you, Todd, because the vibe I got, even though his teammate is the one from Spain, I thought Charles Leclerc or Charles Leclerc did a tremendous job being a bullfighter because that's what Max was the last race. He was a bull in the China shop. He wanted to go for the very first gap he could and Charles used his own pimp against him in a sense. Now we are seeing that Max is evolving, Max is learning, and that is a scary sight. And Nick articulated that beautifully. Now, my understanding of this is what is the counter to the counter? Because now I'm sure Ferrari has seen this. They are now going to go in the lab. And this is where the fun aspect of sports and games comes into play. Because I've always had this idea that every great athlete can be measured after their third year. Because the first year, that person is going to take the league by storm. 
The second year, the league has found out about said athlete, and they're going to go out of their way to make sure that that person does not beat them again the way they did in the first year. So that's why in the third year, that's when you see the true measure of the man or the woman in this case. Don't want to be sexist. So now we've got our third race in Australia. It's going to be really interesting because to your point, Todd, we are going to see some instance of no, 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 you go. No, 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 you go. And now it's going to be quite telling to see who has the advantage because right now I think it's a neutral thing. I think they're both have the other way they think they want them. But obviously like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. I think both of them have taken a shot to the mouth. So now it's going to be really interesting because I think the racing starts after that. I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, it's, it, it was an incredible race, right? Like even Charles Leclerc even came out and said like, it's one of my favorite races ever today right the back and forth is is beautiful so todd's point i do think that that there is some interesting possible negative aspects of drs just like quickly so like drs is the drag reduction system if you watch formula one you'll see the back of the wing open up and essentially what that does is it allows just to be a little bit quicker you know i think it's probably what like five percent ten percent quicker than normal I kept saying 16 um, kilometers per hour. Like they, somebody must have talked to them because anytime yeah. somebody mentioned DRS, they're like, yep, here's that 16 kilometer per hour advantage. Yeah. So you, so if you have DRS, which is determined by when you cross the line and, and being within one second of the person that's in front of you. So, you know, in the example of, of Max passing just before you go into a DRS zone, Leclerc letting him pass opens it up. So he has a 16 kilometer per hour advantage over max through the next handful of turns or whatever it is, depending on the track. And I think that the interesting part about that is we've never seen it become such a strategy and such a, a cat and mouse game. Right. But prior to this year, the cars weren't close enough where, you know, like you would see people pass using DRS, but almost exclusively on a long straight, almost exclusively like, pass and be gone. And if you, if you watched today's race or listened to, to today's race, Jensen Button, who's a formula, a former formula one driver with uh, like bar Honda and Braun and a bunch of other teams uh, actually won a championship with Braun. Right. So um, he basically explained it as like this, you know, this is like the, the first, like the best use of it. Right. He was just giddy at the end of the race because seeing all this back and forth, is like although there's like that element of like gamifying the actual driving aspect that is kind of like offish a little bit to todd's point it's also making a really exciting race and once we start seeing once we start seeing teams kind of understand the cars better the tires better we kind of saw a little bit of it, it wasn't specifically around the drs zones but there was a little bit, I guess, with Max and Kevin Magnuson, right? These guys are, you know, what at that time, seven, eight on the on the grid, maybe, I think, further back, right? So like and Magnuson is is, you know, in a Haas car. Lewis is in is in a Mercedes that arguably is probably the worst performing Mercedes he's had in 10 years. And to kind of we didn't even get to see them battle to to Todd's point, right? Like because it was happening kind of coinciding with all of this upfront stuff between Leclerc and Verstappen, it was, it, it wasn't as like in our face to be able to see like how they use those DRS zones. 
But the back and forth between those two is like everything we've been hoping for, for formula one, for all these new rule changes too. So hopefully we continue to see like this, like really competitiveness, but also, yeah, I don't want, I would, I would hate to, for that to become the dependency on passing, right. And playing that game, you know, and this track and the last track were like kind of perfectly set up to like make the DRS zones, the game and the deciding factor. I don't think that will be the case on all tracks, but it was definitely fascinating to see that and to see kind of, you know, like, like to Rose point, got you here, you got me there next race. But if that's the case and these two guys go back and forth for the entire season, like this season is going to be incredible regardless of however anybody else finishes. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I don't like, I don't want to sound like, I don't like the racing that's transpiring. I just don't want it to be every race is someone's gamifying the DRS zones, which it maybe won't happen. And there's things they can do to fix it, right? They can move the DRS detection line because they have to be within one second of the car ahead at a certain point on track. And then once they get to the zone that we've been talking about, which is another line on track, then they can open the rear wing flap and go faster or whatever. But they can move, they could do things like to this track specifically or Bahrain last last week where they move the either the DRS zone itself. So it's not as powerful as to say it was down that main straight, or they can move the detection line uh, earlier in the track or later in the track. So that one last corner wouldn't matter in the same way, you know, that they won't be lock literally locking their brakes up at the same time to like yeah. try to who's going to, Oh, you know, you go first. No, you go first. So that's that, that, that I think it will be different for every track. Like you said, Nick, but I just don't want it to be, Oh, Max wins a race. Cause he, did the better game on the DRS zone today or that one turn or whatever it is. But I'm so glad that you talked about the uh, Lewis and and Magnuson battle because this is – I'm going to just continue into my points here because I wrote notes down. And holy hell, whoever's directing – and I know how hard this is to try to film the strategy and the race and – Everything that's going on with 20 different cars on track and everything that's happening. But, like, I don't care who's in the stands and what their sign says. I don't want to see a replay of someone getting squirrely in a corner that turned out to be nothing. Like, I want to see the racing on the track. Like, I think Sky Sports, uh, uh, they're, they have a motto. What the hell is it? Oh, you're, you're only live once? That's right. That's damn right. The race is happening. It's only live once. You only see it live for the one time. So don't show me, you know, a fan or somebody standing on the pit wall or like the back of Mike Crack, Mike Crack's head. Like I had just have to say his name because I can't. I'm a, I'm a child. But and I, I do want to give a special shout out to um, Tommy Bellingham from WTF One podcast because he wrote a post that was like an open letter to the. F1 TV director that just said everything I want to say. And the funniest part about it is I don't remember if you guys remember. I don't remember. or I don't know if you guys remember Monaco last year, but there's literally a battle for the lead going on and they show a replay of Lance Stroll doing nothing like nothing important. And that 
part of the race that we're talking about. They were showing like, I think it was like, um, you know, Checo in P4 with kind of nobody around him just chugging along. Granted, he was flying like good, good. Checo's an amazing driver. But like we have a serious battle going on one spot behind him where they passed each other in each. They went back and forth, I think, three laps in a row passing each other. Why not show that? Please, God, improve the direction. We only race once. I'm <laughs> I'm. I'm... I'm on I'm a hundred percent in agreement with you, but I'm gonna play devil's advocate here just a tiny bit because the best part of this race, the best part of this race could have been the two Alpine cars, Esman Ocon and Fernando Alonso going back and forth for what four laps and just battling each other. And they they stayed on them almost the entirety of that battle. 100% agree with you, but that was a battle. It's like, imagine if they showed, they were showing that battle, and then all of a sudden they cut away to, like, my boy, my beloved Danny Rick in P18. Yeah. Or, like, cut away to a fan with a sign that's like, go Checo in the, in the stands. Like, no one gives a shit. Just show the racing. Show the overtakes. Like, I replays are cool they do fill in a little bit of color like if because they can't show all 20 cars at the same time that would be chaos our brains couldn't like understand what's going on if we were watching all 20 cars on 20 screens but like show the passing and if you need to show a replay of somebody getting squirrely because of a certain track element like we saw alonso had a really good catch uh actually it was the same could have been the same wreck that mick had he went over that curb into like turn. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Turn, point. turn eight, seven, eight, nine, that little complex. He like could have done the exact same wreck as Mick. Like show that, that like that oh shit moment. And then like his recovery, which was amazing car control. And the dude's like, you know, as old as I am, which is crazy. Um, But like show that later. Show that when there's a lull in the racing. But not like when we have an active battle with the two pink cars, which was, let's be honest, the best racing all day, I think. The, the two pink cars were going at each other. And I love Otmar so much for not like instituting team orders immediately and let him go, letting him go at it. It was just amazing. It's a great bit of parenting. You boys are going to be boys. So it's just like, yeah, they'll figure it out, but it's not going to impact the team. I feel like that was the thinly veiled, strong assessment. Like this isn't going to impact the team. Like he doesn't have to say that, but I guess the question I got, because I think I'm the resident Alpine appreciator, who is number one on this team? Because I'm still convinced it's El Plan himself, Fernando Alonso. I thought you were going to go the other way with that and say Ocon because I know your affinity for Ratatouille. I, I, I do enjoy a good Ratatouille, but, right? But it's it's Ocon. The guy's like he shows almost every race why he's a double world champion. Oh, you mean and, Alonso, right? Because Alonso's a double world champion. Art. You, sorry, uh, sorry. Yep, listen, I, me I and Ratatouille Nation appreciate that. And when that actually happens, I will get a commemorative <laughs> tattoo of you, like as a classy tram stamp. But I digress. You were making a point, God. No, I was just going to say, like, everyone has, I think, the F1 fandom at large loves to jump down a driver's throat when they have a bad race, when they make a mistake. 
Um, even last year when Alonso was coming into the team after his bad performance at um, McLaren the last time he retired from F1, everyone's like, oh, he doesn't have it anymore. He shows it weekly why he's so damn good. And the, like, the car control and his wheel-to-wheel action, I, I just I love him so much. And now that he's not like a hothead asshole like the aforementioned Max, I'm sorry, Aaron. Um but yeah, he's he's just a great person. And and he's like taking Ocon under his wing and trying to show him all of his tips and tricks, which just makes oh, him better. He gave him a masterclass on the track today. Like anytime Ocon tried to do something, it was just like, you don't want these droids. Go ahead and just hang back, young fellow. Let the old dog show you some more tricks. Totally, totally. I mean, and and that's the thing, like you just wouldn't see that from from Red Bull, Mercedes, right? Like the letting the guys actually race each other doesn't happen very often. And it happened a little bit with Ferrari over the past few years, just in kind of like this, like we're not going to win, but we're going to be out here kind of, you know, place that they were in. But I think that's been interesting to, to kind of see, in my opinion, it's, it's really Alpine and McLaren that actually allows that to happen on a regular basis. And you know, to Todd's point, it's it's the funnest part about the races that, in, in my mind, right? Because these guys are are you know it's like competing with your brothers. You know, like you can't you can't compare because you know so much about each other. You're around each other all the time. Your you know your entire livelihood is based on the success of both of you in a lot of ways, right? Because one great driver and one driver who can't live up to the comp to the to the you know the expectations usually doesn't last on the team very long. So I think it's just been, it was awesome to see that. And, you know, I kind of made the joke in the discord, like, honestly, like this is what they need to do. Like the, the teams just need to let the guys battle each other and then they'll get plenty of, of airtime and, and the sponsors will be happy. There'll be more money coming in. They'll have better cars. This is the key to, to F1 success in my opinion, with, with the cars being as close as they are this year. Could you imagine like the points if like the point system was only counted against your teammate? Like and it was they were just racing their teammate in the same cars like talk about the TV direction. Holy shit. Yeah. They, they, they would lose their minds. But I do want to ask because we talked about this in a little bit in the pre-show and I was just looking at the lap chart again. I don't remember how it happened exactly and I think you guys were saying it was the other way around. But while the pink cars were battling I could have sworn Alonzo was in front. They went into turn one. Alonzo overcooked it and then went wide into turn two, I guess that is, and then stayed ahead. And what we said when talked about last year in the racing and gained a lasting advantage by going off track. I could have sworn that was Alonzo in front and then he didn't give the place back. Um, no, and I think I had the opposite memory of that because I thought, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I thought my question is that I know that race control or the race directors said that they're not going to essentially intervene when that happens. And I understand it was between teammates or two cars that are on the same team, but like if that does happen, they're just gonna re- they're relying on the teams to like honor system like we're just going to give the place back. Like, how does that really, especially what if it comes down to a race or an important um, point 
or something that they're trying to achieve, are they really going to be like, oh, you, okay, you gained a lasting advantage, but you decided that you didn't need to give it back or cool. Like that's something I'm waiting to see because I feel like that's with with the ambiguity ambiguity in the rules that we just suffered last year at the end, like leaving it up to the honor system for, for me doesn't necessarily work. So they did. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, the teams are going to take advantage any, any way they can. This instance that we're talking about, whether it was O'Connor, Alonzo, it doesn't really matter because the team would have stepped in and, and said, hey, you know, whatever's right needs to happen. If they wanted to, it's up to them, right? Who cares between two teammates? It's going to be up to the team anyway, because like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, okay, they got an advantage. If the team wants Alonzo in front or wants Ocon in front, that's who's going to be in front. But at the end of the race, probably five, 10 laps to go, Checo actually kind of pushed signs off and they made him give that position back. So was that Red Bull that's acknowledging that he made the air? It was. Yeah. So they, yeah. <clears throat> go no, ahead, it Red. was Red Bull because I think they even played the radio message and it was something as simple as Checo's race engineer saying, Hey, we have to give the place back. This is the rationale behind. And to Checo's point, he just slid aside. He didn't refute it in any stretch of the imagination. And to answer the initial question as well as it's cute now in race two where there aren't stakes and the honor system looks good. When we are three races away from a conclusion of a season and things are a little bit more hotly contested, that's when I want to know how well you think the honor system is working. Because I think, once again, this is FIA kind of washing their hands of any sort of responsibility because I'm sure they felt the backlash of the Michael Massey incident from last year. And by deflecting the blame, I think they think they can get away with it scot-free, but I think it's going to cause a bigger shit storm whenever this thing will break and it will break. Yeah, my head immediately goes to not this year, but last year at Bahrain when Lewis, we know, went off track like 30 times or whatever it was. And then the one time that Max did it, or I guess Max started doing it too once Red Bull noticed that he was using that turn to go wide to carry more speed. Um, so they were both doing it just by themselves. But then Max ended up passing Lewis on that turn off track and had to give the place back because he was told to but you think if that situation repeats itself between the two front runners that they're gonna be like ah you know what we got off track they're gonna say no he pushed me wide he i was pushed wide or i the cause of that was the other driver that's why i went off track and i'm not gonna give it back because that's that's racing he pushed me i went around you know like i just think it's a recipe for disaster or the other thing, which I don't know if they're doing yet or not, because I don't know if that situation's presented itself, is are they just going to, if the team chooses not to give it back, are they going to look at it later and then say, oh, time penalty, so you're behind them anyway? Or if three racers finish in within a second of each other, are they going to be like, oh, you're now two places because you didn't give the place back? You know? Yeah, I mean, that's terrible if that's what ends up happening, right? I mean, that's terrible for the fans, because if you're watching a race... You see the finish. I mean, it's only, it doesn't happen very often, but if as a, as a, I guess a, a, a more long-term fan, right? Like there's been plenty of times when, you know, positions have been pulled, guys have been disqualified afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. But 
it's it's a terrible experience for for the fans in my opinion to to leave that off the leave the like possibility of happening after the race is finished in my opinion it needs to happen within the race as much as it possibly can i get that there's instances where you're just not going to be able to penalize somebody or see something but like you're the governing body. Make the call. Don't pass the buck. Like that's to me is, and I don't like using the term because there's a loaded aspect to it, but that's cowardice in my mind and grow a pair. Maybe. I mean, I guess we'll see if it plays out this year. If it doesn't and that honor system works, cool. If not, um, I guess we'll maybe have another sour sour race or sour ending not that it's going to decide a championship again but the possibility that it could who knows yeah i mean <laughs> yeah. and and if you look at last year alone right it's just ridiculous to even think that this was what came out of all these conversations because i mean these guys are on the radio fighting for every split second that they can get if they can negotiate something with Massey last season, they are right. Like to be able to have that insight last year and to be able to hear it, like it's a blessing and a curse, right? As I said before, you couldn't pay me billions, trillions, whatever amount of dollars to have that position and have to listen to all these egotistical maniacs try to tell you how to do your job while there's 20 cars driving 200 miles an hour around in a, a racetrack. Like not to mention all the other people that are dependent on that role, but to, to, have any kind of possibility that is up to these guys to, to kind of choose their own destiny, you know, in a sense, right. They're all going to choose to win. They are all like type triple a personalities. Like they're all out there to beat each other every second and every moment of every, you know, I'm surprised we don't see them like literally physically running to the podium just to say, well, you might've beat me on track, but I beat you to the podium. Like that's how type A they are. <laughs> I just, I just imagining that in my head. Like, oh, I, I, I must have literally first the one Ricky the Bobby steps. thing. Yeah, <laughs> really, yes. Just Sean Gerard. Oh man, can we t- can we talk about Yuki? Poor Yuki. Can we just do a montage set to like Seriously. Enya Sail Away for all the race car drivers that couldn't finish this race? Because holy crap, six of them? Oh, quite a difference from the first race. I mean, yeah, it was. No, it, it ended up being a race of attrition without the. Well, there were some accidents, but like we saw last year that there was just cars. There was, you know, drivers and Mazepin plowing into other cars. Um, notice how I didn't call him a driver there. He, he's now a weatherman. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just, for Yuki needs some luck. He needs like some rabbit feet or some lucky dice or four leaf clover or whatever the hell he needs to get because his, for his car to go bad in qualifying and then he's having like a pretty good race. And then his car goes bad again. Just come on, man. And he just felt like a little broken after this race. And like, I think his quote was like, things can't go be going like this. Um, and he said in the post-race media, is just like, man, I, I feel like Danny Ricks had some really rough luck and shout out to 
Honey Badger because he had a rough go today because I felt like his performance is a little better and then the car pooped out on him. But yeah, Yuki just, he needs a hug. No, I just, silver lining. He was the only one that finished last week from a Red Bull perspective. So he needs to hang on to that. And I think we've all been in those moments where we've been in a funk where nothing seems to go our way. You just got to embrace the things that are going your way, no matter how minute and small fruit they may be. The other question I ask is, is Yuki back to Milton Keynes? Because that man needs to stay in Italy as long as he can. Like at this point, that's that's the key to his success. So if I see that he's gone back to England, we know what's to blame. And France, come get your boy and put him back in Italy because that was the key. It's tough too because you literally have no chance, right? Like you, you go through the entire, you know, first three days of, you know, being at the track and practice qualifying and literally on the warm up lap, right? It's got to be the most disheartening way to. To, to feel like to have all that buildup of emotion and energy and just like, and, and then to like not even be able to participate, it's gotta be like one of the worst feelings I could ever imagine. Yeah, man. Like, <laughs> but as, uh, Rohit mentioned, like this turned out to be a race of attrition in the, in the weirdest way, because like three cars within 30 seconds died. We had Danny Rick, Alonso, and Botes. who was the third? Was it Botas? Yeah. They just like went poop all of a sudden. And I, I, it was really interesting for me because I remembered back to the first, or well, the, the testing in, in Bahrain. Or was it? No. Uh, Barcelona. Barcelona. Yeah, Barcelona. Barca. Everyone, every F1 journalist was like, wow, this is so unusual for testing you know like they think that we're thinking back to the last big rule change when we entered the turbo hybrid era and cars were dying left and right popping engines etc cetera, etc cetera. and now we have that again after they just praised oh we have so much reliability now it was really interesting and i hope that we still have things like this happen i feel bad for the guys that went out of the race to due to no fault of their own mechanical failure or whatever, but it is going to mix things up. It's going to make for an exciting championship, but just not, not my boy Yuki, especially, I mean, somewhat like 1% selfish because he is on my fantasy team and that's, you know, I, I could use a little help. We could all use a little help if we're being honest. I was just looking at it. I think all of us have had at least one week, and it's only been two weeks where we've seen two members crash out of our points. So it's going to be a long season in that regard. Are you worried about Yuki in the sense that if he doesn't have the season that Red Bull expects, is he gone? I ask because it's Red Bull, and they have a history of doing this. I would say that it's not a hundred percent certain that he's gone, but I think that I think it's a strong possibility, right? Like, you know, kind of to the conversation, let's say if you were watching a couple of years back, right? Alex Albon, who 
coincidentally didn't finish this race either because he got into it a little bit with Lance Stroll in the last handful of laps was with Red Bull, you know, came out, you know, re replaced Pierre Gasly. Gasly was back to Alpha Tori. Albon had like some incredible runs, but then Gasly ended up winning a race as a, as an Alpha Tori driver, which is probably the last thing that, you know, Red Bull wants is to see their kind of secondary team actually beat the, the, the premier team. But I think with Yuki, he is, he's really close, you know, like, I don't think we can start talking about that quite yet, I guess, because look, shit happens in formula one shit happens in racing in general, right? Like to my point earlier about having to have so many people on board and being on to, on the team and understanding how it all works as a team. There's so many moving pieces. There's so many things that can go wrong. And frankly, if, if, you know, if you miss a race here and there, you know, as long as you're in the points and long as you're competitive, like people aren't going to hold those, those moments against you. Like him, him not being able to race today had nothing to do with him as a, as a driver. Right. It's, it's poor luck, but I do think the first race was, you know, arguably one of his best performances in formula one, to be honest, you know, like he might've finished higher in a couple of races previously, but like he drove really well and to drive really well when the other three cars associated with Red Bull failed and to know that you know that those three cars failed and you still finished right like there's a mental you know there's some mental gymnastics to get through that as a driver in my opinion because ultimately you're just wondering when it's going to happen to you if you've if you've seen the other three you know kind of not teammates but the other three you know team cars essentially in my opinion i don't know what do you think todd i think i'm going to play a little devil's advocate for you now because I think Yuki is absolutely at risk this year. The reason he got the seat was due to his Honda association, right? That's why they chose him over a couple of other suitors. And I think last year was a combination of growing pains and also his lovable childlike nature of not being a professional racing driver yet which is why he was moved to Italy and living with Franz Tost. Um, but I think he's in the hot seat. And to your point, Nick, about they know when they will keep an eye over the course of the season on how a driver's performing. One, it's how do you measure up to your teammate, right? If you're a tenth off, if you're a couple hundredths off your teammate, you're golden, right? Because that shows that you as a driver pairing are getting whatever the theoretical maximum of the car is. But if you're consistently a quarter of a second, a half a second behind, which up until this point has pretty much been the case with Yuki, he's not on the same level or pace as Pierre. I don't think he's as good of a driver as Pierre probably, but uh, he's shown some brilliant moments in like F2 and stuff. Um, But the, the one key thing that you said there, Nick, is that if they're driving in the points at the end of the day, it really does matter if you're giving points towards the team, towards the constructors, because if you're not finishing in P1 and you know enough to win the drivers, the only other thing that matters is building those points towards the constructors championship. And they're going to look at the over the course of the season and they'll see 
you know, Yuki gave him 30 points, they're not going to be like, oh, well, he could have had points in Jeddah, but they, they will, obviously. But like that's you're it's F1 is very much a sport that's like, what have you done for me lately? And it's uh, it's sad to say that, it, you know, we've talked about it a bunch that it's a pay to play sport. I don't think that now that there's as much of a tie to Honda that they, we have these new RBR engines that look to be not as cool as we thought initially. Um, if he doesn't producing results with the car when it does finish like consistently and he's on the same pace as Pierre, I think he's gone this year. See, I, I should have had a caveat that I was just planning for Re- Rowett's prediction of a third Red Bull team by the end of the season, which would, you know, we don't even have to worry about it. Yuki's got it made. Listen, from my mouth to helmet Marco's ear, because yeah, I'm I'm slightly worried about <laughs> our boy Yuki. Uh, the other thing I was kind of interested to see was would Haas throw a second driver out there? They didn't, and kudos to them for maintaining, I guess, a sense of loyalty. But as Todd alluded to, the F in Formula One often stands for fickle, and that's exactly what these guys are. Give me my points or get the hell off my team. And it is going to be a very interesting subplot to see because one of us also predicted that we would see five racers depart the grid this year. So I may have added stakes in the game. I don't want to be that guy, but I have to be the guy because otherwise we're too nice of a panel. He's definitely... If five five drivers go, he's definitely in that list. Like I I think that if he's... Uh, you know what? Like Ga- Gasly, he and Gasly have the same points as of the first two races, right? I think they both finished eighth, or did was Yuki ninth last week? Very close, regardless. But the rest of the teams, you know, like I think Latifi, obviously with two wrecks this weekend, is pushing his luck. I think that, uh, with the exception of the final laps, that that set Hulkenberg in front of Stroll. Like Stroll hasn't scored any points, hasn't beat this guy that is fresh off, you know, a year or two without racing. Three? Fresh off the couch. Yeah, fresh off the couch. And not to say that, you know, there's not some kinks being worked out with the first couple of races or handful of races because the cars aren't up to where people are expecting them and the drivers got to get used to them. But if if Stroll I don't think Stroll's going to be pushed out because he's obviously the money behind the team. But I definitely think that there will be conversations there that, that, you know, it will be, it will be pitched by someone on the Aston Martin team. If Stroll doesn't like step up his game in some way. Right. And I'm not saying that that will actually like occur. Cause you know, how do you go say, how how does Haas have that conversation with, you know, Mr. You know, with senior Mazespin, right? Like it just doesn't happen, right? You can't bite the hand that feeds you when, you, when the person's funding it the entire took team. took a war for them to avoid that awkward conversation. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I, I think, I think, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of potential for expansion too, right? Like we're, we're seeing, you know, Vegas on the calendar there's you know I I think the strategy is for Formula One and the FIA as as a whole is let's drop this 30 races in a season idea which they did a week or two ago 
That's absurd. Nobody's going to agree to that yet. But if they do that consistently and people keep making more money and more fans keep coming in, then for the next five years, they could add one, maybe even two races, and we could get to 27 or 28. And if that's the case, then, you know, who's to say that they couldn't convince somebody to have a, a third team or a new, you know, like the Andretti team comes in and now we have 11 teams on the grid. There's just a lot of a lot of room for expansion, I think. Not to say that, you know, not to take away from like Yuki kind of being a hot seat at Red Bull because or with AlphaTauri because, you know, there isn't there isn't a, a Honda team, right? Like there's no connection for him in that regard, that safety net that he had last year. But, you know, also who's to say that somebody else won't come in and, and like say, cool, you've, you've got a couple years experience now racing in a, in a Red Bull car you know, or AlphaTauri car. And can you, can you drive for, you know, become a second driver for somebody else or whatever that looks like? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. He's got to show something even for that to happen, but I'm glad you guys did mention yeah, I agree. the, uh, adding teams and races because now we know we have Vegas happening on Thanksgiving, um, next year. And, I forgot to mention this when we did our off-schedule pod or the bonus episode on Friday, but Stefano Domenicali, the president of the FIA, um, also was talking about how Andretti's not the only team trying to get into F1 now, and there's apparently five. So we're looking maybe at a 26, 28-driver grid gives us the perfect opportunity to circle back and say we don't need to race at Jeddah. The track is too narrow. It's way too dangerous. And if we put five more teams on the grid, we should not be there anyway. Politics aside, let's just not do it, right? Okay. That's That's off my pedestal. Fantastic way to wrap it up. Because F that race, I think we talked about it at length in the Discord and on the, the episode on Friday. It needs to go it is a great idea, but if you have even the drivers, the thrill junkies, the people that eat, sleep, breathe adrenaline, uh, saying like, oh, it's an exciting race, but like, mm, maybe not so much. Um, and you see people slapping the wall and potentially really getting close to injuring themselves. It happened a bunch in F2 that nobody talked about because of the Mick crash and the attack on the oil refinery. So that was really overshadowed. But there was a bunch of big crashes in F2 this weekend. Holy hell, just get rid of that race. The pitch for the race just seems to be, here's a big pile of money. But did you die, though? You can't collect the money if you're dead. Bars. Bars. That's... Wow. Let's just drop the mic there. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for listening to us. We appreciate you guys rocking with us. This has been a blast for us to have these conversations. We hope you all are enjoying. To Rowett's point earlier, leave us a review, give us some feedback, let us know what you think. There's definitely enough of you that you could reach out to us on Twitter, Exhaust Notes FM. You can follow Todd now with a new handle, right? Yeah, I changed it because it was just didn't make any sense. It was a reference to Jack Handy, the old SNL character. Cause it was just kind of a Twitter troll account, but it was hack Jandy. So I changed it to match all my other social medias. It's now at T F one on Twitter and at T on Instagram. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Roheasy, on Instagram at Rodem13. And Nick, tell us where they can follow you. I'm at Nick Engvall on all the platforms, and uh, I am in the Discord on a regular basis. We've had some great conversations in between races, so that'll be the first link in the description if you want to join us. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Write a Peace. review, Greg. You're my Write boy, Danny Rick. Write a review, Aaron. Mm-hmm.